An artist's job is to offer up some form, some kind of reflection of what's going on. What's going on out there, what's going on inside us, what's going on inside me right now, and to organize it in some kind of way, whether that is painting, dance, sculpture, film, music, you name it, to organize that reflection into an offering back to everybody else. You might see you in this. This might make you feel something. You might recognize yourself in this. For me, with music and art, it's always going to circle back to why we needed it in the first place. The platforms will change. Who we trust will change. The middlemen will change. The gatekeepers, the filters will change. But why we do it and why we need to feel it, that will not change. Art and music for thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history were just useful tools of the tribe. We needed it for ritual, for grieving, for transition, for celebration. None of that was about selling shit. It was about doing and being and connecting. That's Amanda Palmer, and this is The Ritual Podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. This is my podcast. Welcome or welcome back. Good to be with you here today. Quick reminder, my big live show plus podcast is coming up quick. It's going down Friday, September 27th at the beautiful, the historic Wilshire Ebell Theater. Special guest to be announced. Really excited about this. We're working hard behind the scenes to craft and create this immersive, entertaining experience. Uh, Tickets are still available, but they're going quickly. So grab yours while they're hot. And you can find them by clicking on the appearances tab on my website, richroll.com. I'll also put a link up in the show notes as well. Uh, And you can sign up for my newsletter and I'll send you an email about it. In any event, very excited about today's guest, a true artist who in so many ways defies any attempt to define her, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, Amanda Palmer is many, many things. She's a singer, a songwriter, a musician, a playwright, an author, a pianist, a director, a blogger, a TED talker. Uh, what else? A feminist, an activist, a crowdfunder, uh, and, and really a performance artist who lives and breathes at the cutting edge of expression in all forms. Amanda got her start as a busking eight-foot bride statue in Harvard Square and went on to form one half of the inventive punk cabaret act, the Dresden Dolls, before launching one of the most successful crowdfunded solo careers in music history. And the crowdfunding part is super interesting and compelling in this case because Amanda is iconic not just for her fearless artistry, but also for how she has reinvented and embraced and really leaned into her audience to support her creativity. Uh, Towards this end, her 2013 TED Talk, The Art of Asking, about this very subject, uh, would go on to be viewed over 20 million times, leading to her New York Times bestselling memoir, 
The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. Now leveraging this legion of Patreon supporters that she has, I think it's about 15,000 at this point, Amanda's career is devoted to her adoring fans. And her latest creation is There Will Be No Intermission. And it's this beautiful, haunting, and really powerful solo album and world tour that grapples with the very personal and social, emotional landscape of abortion, miscarriage, and death. Uh, I had the opportunity to see uh, the epic four-and-a-half-hour show at the Ace Theater here in Los Angeles in May. Uh, I was very moved by it and was fortunate enough to have this conversation with her the following day. Uh, more about all this in a minute, but first... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health 
is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, Amanda, what an honor, what a privilege to spend time with this incredible human being. This is a great conversation. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about compassion, the power of vulnerability, uh, the importance of empathy, uh, why perfectionism is the enemy of creativity and uh, why asking for help is so hard, but crucial and generally almost always welcome. Uh, we also talk a little bit about Henry David Thoreau, a little myth busting there, and donuts. Yes, donuts. You're going to have to hear the story. I'll admit I was a little bit nervous on this one. I don't know if it comes across or not. Uh, this was a big one for me. I just, uh, I was geeking out, uh, fanning out on Amanda. I was just so delighted to talk to her. Uh, but I think it's a good one. Uh, final note, Amanda had a flight to catch. So this one is a little bit more truncated than my usual conversations, but nonetheless, amazing. Uh, so without further ado, let's talk to the powerful and amazing Amanda Palmer. following you for a long time, but I'd never seen you perform before. Mm. And um, I was deeply impacted by it. But I think the thing that moved me the most was just the love from the audience. Like the connection is so deep with your peeps. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a long-term relationship we've had. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be able to do a show like this if I didn't have an audience that I had grown up with for mm -hmm. so long. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's no small thing. And it was, it was very, very evident, the amount of love that was, that was moving in two directions. Yeah. You know, and uh, four hours. Four and a half. Yeah, I do like, <laughs> I do, I'm an athlete. I do like ultra distance stuff, like ultra marathon type stuff. Hmm. Um, that was the ultra endurance version of Amanda Palmer last night. Well, and ironically, I I feel that the show should be a little longer. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, no, I had you were, to cut, you were, yeah, you would have kept to going. Rush, I had to rush to get uh -huh. to curfew. I didn't get to play the encore. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, in the original draft of the show, I had more songs and stories. They had to get cut and cut and cut. And yeah, cut. yeah, yeah. 
Well, I loved it. I loved everything about it. And I'm delighted to be able to talk to you today. So thanks for making time. I'm really glad you came. Yeah. Um, radical compassion is what I want to talk about uh, if you're open to it. <laughs> when we were, um, when Greg and I were chatting during the intermission, Greg said something uh, that I think is totally on point, which is um, that you can't be uh, radically compassionate on the level that you are without the vulnerability or the willingness to be as vulnerable as you are. And so yeah. I'm just interested in kind of how you think about that. Well, I think, I think compassion and vulnerability um, just sort of go hand in hand. And, you know, I also think that the thing that makes radical compassion radical is that um, by definition, you can't be selective about it. Right. I mean, this is the thing, and this is what I see in the feminist movement all the time too, is like you can't decide to be compassionate you know, just for those people or just in this moment, mm -hmm. or, you know, I'll be compassionate if everything lines up for me, if it's convenient, whatever. And, um, you know, in, in order to empathize with somebody, anybody, especially the difficult people, and by the difficult people, that could be the strange people in strange lands that you have very little in common with culturally or your mom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the leaps of compassion that are the most difficult um, do take a certain kind of vulnerability because it, it's in that moment where you're sort of opening yourself up to potential harm or, or actually fear, yeah. which is like the fear of what's gonna happen if you open yourself up to empathizing with this person or what's gonna happen in your own head if you open your imagination up to empathizing with someone who could do something terrible to you. Yeah, yeah, being willing to embrace the fringes of what our social contract is willing to endure, right? Mm. The idea that, uh, we can all agree that compassion is a good thing and everyone likes to think of themselves as compassionate, but how sturdy is that concept, you know? And your willingness to test that at the outer edges of it is, you know, what leads to poem gate. Yeah. Uh, and then that's where you're tested, like your resolve, like is your compassion truly radical enough to withstand the criticism, not just from people from a different political perspective, but your own people. Yes, well, your own people failing to have compassion for you or your failure to have compassion for the people immediately around you. I mean, I feel like mm -hmm. those are the most difficult moments. Yeah, um, so, so maybe explain like the poem thing briefly for people that are listening that might not be familiar with what, what went down. Um, I'm from Boston. Mm -hmm. And so in the spring of 2013, um, my husband, Neil, and I were renting uh, a place in Boston, not far from my apartment. We had just gotten together a relationship that was still pretty new. And we had moved to Boston because my best friend had cancer and I was taking him to chemo. And the Boston bombing happened a few blocks from my apartment where I had lived for many, many, many years. Yeah. And there's a there's a lot of layers but the i think the most important thing is 
you know, I, I live on the internet a lot. My community gathers on the internet. And when the Boston bombing happened, um, this is also 2013, so I was on Twitter a lot. Yeah. And we were all told by the government to stay in our houses. I mean, everyone was literally told, don't go outside. And the news was horrific. I mean, there's literally a, a bloodbath at the marathon finish line. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, it was just sort of unimaginable. Like nothing like this had ever happened in Boston. This was a mass murder. And, and, it, and it was, and the images were particularly horrific. You know, these limbless dying people and the manhunt going on at the mm -hmm. same time. I don't know if you remember the news, but you know, there's yeah. a, a city lockdown and a manhunt for this kid. And this kid, Johar Tsarnaev was 19. And I grew up in Lexington. He grew up in Cambridge, you know, the next town over. And it was so close to home. Like the idea that this, you know, this kid just like me from a lefty liberal town could carry out an act so horrific. And he was friends with kids of my friends. Like this was someone from my community. And we followed as the manhunt happened and you know, they finally found him. He was found bleeding in the bottom of a boat hiding in someone's backyard in Watertown. And I, I, I tried to imagine what it must have been like in that moment to be that kid. I mean, he was a kid. He was 19. Yeah. And he had just murdered a bunch of people and was just lying there waiting to be caught. And I wrote this spur-of-the-moment poem on my blog trying to, you know, not even so much trying to empathize, but just sort of doing this exercise of imagination. Like, what what is it like to be in the bottom of that boat? Um, and I got crucified by the Boston press for when, even daring to offer up what appeared to be empathy for this kid. Yeah. Did you have a sense that that, could be perceived in that way or did that take you by surprise? I was totally shocked. Yeah. And also, you know, I, I posted it to my blog, which was not a blog with a huge readership and to a very specific set of people, you know, my my tribe, my community, many of whom um, had been with me on Twitter for the past few days watching this unfold. You know, we were all holding each other in this really horrifying moment. And this was mostly for them. And the, the poem actually sort of stitched together my own feelings of lostness and confusion in the world with this kids, which I think was what people found mostly offensive. And, you know, the first comments in on my blog were from my fan base, my yeah. community. And, and um, you know, people read it, they liked it, they understood it. But then, you know, when the outside world got a hold of it and this crazy right-wing blog found it and put it up, I was all of a sudden branded, you know, a terrorist sympathizer. And and um, there were lots of very, 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 very yeah. nasty words and languages that you know, I do not want to repeat. Um, but do you, do you think part of that was due to timing? Or yeah, I think it yeah, was all Like timing. if you had done that a year later or- Yeah, if I had done it a year later, I don't think anyone would have cared, but this was, I mean, this was like three or four days after yeah. the bombing. Um, so it, it hurt, of course, a little bit to get yelled at by all these right-wing people, but what, what really hurt was getting yelled at by my own 
you know, by the left wing people mm -hmm. who, you know, screamed at me that this was inappropriate and too soon. And especially what hurt the most was that, you know, Amanda, we get that you believe in radical compassion and that's great, but there are people who we do need to exclude. Right, it begs the question of whether compassion is a zero sum game. Like if you're apportioning compassion to one person, does that mean that you are neglecting compassion for somebody else? And is compassion um, tantamount to, to endorsement, right? Well, That's where it gets sort of confusing yeah, and Yeah, and it's not. And right. I mean, this was my defense and I, you know, I felt so wildly misunderstood. And you know, the first thing I did is I put my hand up and I was like, you guys, you guys, you guys, you, you do get that I do understand what just happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, my friend Dylan Maron, who has a, his own great podcast, it's called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And he connects people with their internet trolls and haters. It's a really beautiful podcast. Um, and he has a great maxim that empathy is never endorsement. Yeah. Empathy is not endorsement. Empathy is just empathy. And, you know, and you've got, I mean, uh, the more I think about these sorts of things and the more I look at it from, you know, through different facets, we have to have compassion for the worst people. Well, I think we're, we're in a cultural moment right now where these, how we talk about these things has become so highly sensitized mm. as we retreat into our silos and, you know, virtue signal to our <laughs> respective audiences. And what's kind of interesting is the juxtaposition of that kind of cultural gestalt into, in that direction versus your relationship with Twitter, which is like this incredibly positive, you know, community oriented kind of collective experience that raises the vibration of all the people that you touch and impact. Mm. Yet at the same time, there's this other, you know, ecosystem that's going on on that same platform that's contributing to the problem that ultimately you had to kind of weather through. Yeah, and that's a fear-driven system. Mm -hmm. So what's the antidote? Keep just doubling down on- just Fucking <laughs> put your head down and, yeah. and, uh, and you know, it's, it can be very tempting. Mm -hmm to give in to, um, you know, anger, judgment, that silo that you were talking about. Um, but it never works. It doesn't, it never pans out well. <laughs> yeah, but we're just seeing it continually amplifying like 10X every year. So what do we just need more Amanda Palmer's on Twitter, I guess. Uh, well, actually it might be useful to mention that I did not come by that immediately. Um, I learned, you know, I've been on the internet since 1999, and the the early um, Dresden Dolls blog, you know, you know, soon had a forum, and it, this was all pre Facebook, pre Twitter, pre MySpace, even pre LiveJournal, uh -huh. like in the the or days of the internet. And I learned, I learned gradually that feeding you know feeding the monsters of hate and judgment on the internet were not really yielding good fruit and i learned these lessons through my blog you know and through all of a sudden through the power that i wielded having this platform i learned it on twitter and 
I would probably be pretty ashamed of some of the things that I posted in the early days because I just didn't get it yet. You know, and I, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't fully understand yet the importance of not telling other people's stories for them. I didn't understand yet the importance of not, you know, like immediately picking up my sword when someone was challenging me and, and go and having a go at them. Um, I was very reactive and years and years and years on the internet of, and also, you know, my own work and my own mindfulness work finally led me to like realizing that there's a kind of a jujitsu that you can do without leaving the internet and without saying, fuck everything, I'm deleting all my social media. There is a way of reaching back out to people to to decharge a situation, you know, to neutralize. To neutralize and, you know, the best um what's the word I'm looking for? You know, the, the best weapon really can often just be bearing your own throat and showing your own vulnerability to someone who's charging at you. Because yeah. they're never expecting that. Yeah. And when people are coming at you with intense hatred, they're never expecting that you're just going to calmly try to engage them in a loving conversation. Right. That's then not what they want. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> wait, what? What what you just changed the rules here. Yeah. And you know? I I like that practice. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not something I was ever expecting to get good at when mm-hmm. I got into rock and roll, but that wound up being a kind of a side effect yeah. of being a public musician on the internet. How do you feel about um the the kind of hair trigger that we seem to be on in this kind of cancel culture where a mis- I find it a really mis- annoying. A misstep, you know, <laughs> can result in, you know, basically the ruination of somebody for something they said or something that gets misconstrued. I think it's very dangerous. Yeah. And in, in a lot of instances, very stupid. Mm-hmm. And but not- it's a reality. Sure. I mean, it, it is a reality and there are, there. it is important to keep our hand on the throttle of, you know, what gets amplified, who gets attention, what we consume, you know, what stories we want to continue to tell and who gets to tell them. So I would never say like, let's just keep it a a free for all um, and, and not be discerning. Uh, But to just cancel everything that has a whiff of badness would basically mean ultimately if we took that to its end game, the cancellation of all art. <laughs> and I'm not an I'm not a fan of that idea. Yeah, because no, nothing is pure. Right. It just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And the compassion is the is the facility and the willingness to be able to see the whole person beyond the misdeed. Sure. And uh, and you know, part of our job, you and I, anyone with a platform as media makers, culture makers, is to always add context. You know, this is what this is. This is where this came from. We have the internet. We can fucking put anything in context if we're not lazy. Right. Um, And so, you know, something of dubious origin, let's say a short film directed by a serial killer, it can still have its place in society, but it needs to be put into context 
we need to talk about why are we watching this? What is it? What does it mean? What can it teach us? If it has nothing to teach us, fuck it, throw it out, burn it, good. But if it has got something to teach us, and usually, almost always, it does, um, we need to be more careful curators of what culture is and is going to be. And that means not just throwing everything in the dumpster. Yeah, and, a, and an appreciation for subtlety and context, right? Like we've just decided that context is not important, you know, as long as it serves my, you know, agenda or whatever it is that, you know, I stand for. Well, like everything else in culture right now, there's like, there's a death of nuance. Yeah, right. <laughs> And a death of a death of satire and a death of irony, and that's not good for no, anybody. No, it's not. It's not. We're brought to you today by Recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety, and it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. 
an RRP favorite, and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Last night you said uh, in, in the, there was criticism in the wake of this poem situation. Uh, and part of the criticism was that you were you were you were accused of like making light, and you said, "That's my job. The job of the artist is to make light." And you then wrote this other, like this other more recent poem, reflecting back on that same individual in Boston. And you, it was the most beautiful thing. You said, "We will stay crippled in the darkness if we cannot feel compassion for the heart that is the darkest." Just, I really did you know, rhyme darkness with darkest. Yeah. <laughs> Such a fucking lazy it's poet. Still, it's still pretty fucking good though. I love that. Um, and I think we need more of that. Yeah, you know? I will, I'll double down on that any day. Yeah. Beyond, you know, making light, like how do you define the role of the artist? I don't, that's not my job. Yeah. How do you think of it for yourself though? <laughs> Like if you were to elaborate on that. Uh, I mean, an artist's job is to, is to offer up some form, some kind of reflection of what's going on, what's going on out there, what's going on inside us, what's going on inside me right now, and to organize it in some kind of way, you know, whether that is painting, dance, sculpture, film, music, you name it, to organize that reflection into an offering back to everybody else. You might see you in this. This might make you feel something. Uh, you might recognize yourself in this. And, you know, the... I find myself, especially lately, I've been working through so much of my own grief through making art that I find myself wondering, like, God, like, what the fuck do other people do? Like, <laughs> I'm really lucky. Uh -huh. I have a full-time job where I get to, like, work through and try to make meaning of what is happening to me. I get to spend all day and night doing that. But most people would <laughs> would would think of that as a nightmare. Like most people spend a lot of energy trying to like erect a wall in between themselves and whatever that is. Well, and mostly avoiding looking at that. And mostly that doesn't work. No, it doesn't. But people <laughs> will pursue it <laughs> to the grave. Yeah, and mostly yeah. it doesn't work. Mm. You've got to sort through. You've got to make meaning. You've got to um, you know, when grief happens, there has to be space and time to heal. It could be through, you know, through, through any form of exercise or creation, but you have to do it. If you don't do it and you compartmentalize, we see what happens. We're yeah. seeing it all over the place. Yeah, it was was it it was Anthony who said to you that that those those issues left unattended are doing push-ups in the dark. Yeah, right. you, you said if you don't deal with your grief and trauma or your demons, they go into the cellar of your soul and lift weights. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I've experienced that. I think we all we all have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've got a deal. Yeah. When I look at like what you do and all your various expressions, though, it, it's it's almost like you, Amanda Palmer, the person transcends the art. Like you are the art. I think your person is art in its own sense. Like just you, the you know just everything that you are in in, a, in like a Warholian sense. Like you are the expression of all of these things. You're a representation of all of these offerings, but it's a performance in its own right. You know what I, I mean? I would that say sense? that if that's true, it's no more or less true for me than it is for you or anyone else in this room. What do you mean by that? I mean, we're always performing our own lives, all of us. Yeah. You know, this gets into a really heavy duty philosophical uh, rabbit hole of, you know, what's real? Which one of you is real? Like this one, the one who woke up in the morning, the one who was brushing his teeth, the one who is visiting with his family, like which is, you know, which one is persona and which uh -huh. one is real? Well, we're all multifaceted and we show up with different masks and different persona, you know, for different situations. And, you know, for me as an artist, I really like feeling like when I sit down on stage, I'm the closest version of my authentic self and I'm showing the audience the closest thing to quote unquote real that I can come up with. But, you know, it's still show business. Yeah, I still have to be on stage at 7.30 and deliver a show, like no matter what's going on. And in order to do that, I do what anybody else who has to show uh -huh. up you know, to their job yeah, yeah, yeah. to deliver, which is like, you know, pull it together. At the show last night, I was thinking, I had like conflicting thoughts. One was the way that you carried yourself on stage and made yourself comfortable created this sense of intimacy where it really felt like we were just in your living room hanging out, even though we're at, there's 1500 people there or whatever. Like that was immediately established, that level of intimacy and just the... um just just the relaxed demeanor that you had and the way that the show unfolded felt like very spontaneous. Like it just occurred to you in the moment, you were just channeling whatever inspiration came to you in that instance. And then I thought, yeah, but she's on tour. Like there's like, I'm sure it, the show varies a little bit from evening to evening, but essentially she's doing the same thing over yeah. and over and over again. And having to you know try to keep it fresh, but also there's some rehearsed aspect to it, of course. Yeah, so when I was putting this show together, I, um, first of all, I, I was incredibly inspired seeing Hannah Gadsby's show, uh -huh. which I saw in London. And um, I don't know if you've seen it, but no. if you haven't, you should, you should see it. She, um, she, she brought a level of authenticity to that performance that I just, never quite seen before. And, you know, her show is purportedly a stand-up show. And she sort of goes meta stand-up and she explains comedy and she explains laughter and how it's a physical release and how she has used laughter. And she talks about trauma and, you know, and she's uproariously funny. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point in the show, uh, she tells you about being raped. And the laughter just stops and she she allows it to stop 
And then this whole room, this whole group sort of goes through a kind of a cataclysmic experience of having to sit with the discomfort mm. of not being able to laugh. Right, in, in, in defiance of all expectations of yes. what this kind of and, show um, is supposed to be like. And then, and then she just doesn't let up. Uh-huh. And watching her, you know, I thought a lot about her watching the show. I sort of knew her from Australia and from Twitter, and I'd asked her if she wanted to get together after the show, and she said, she, she wrote back to me and she said, I just, I just don't. After this show, I need to be not with people. Mm. And, you know, when I first got that message, I was like, uh, uh, pretentious. And then I <laughs> saw the show and was like, I get it. I get how you wouldn't want to code switch and then five minutes later being, you know, chatting in the green room yeah. about this, that, and the other thing. And I've actually had to deal with my own version of that experience after this show. I find it really hard after doing this show to just be bubbly and sociable. And I still do it every night, but it t- <laughs> takes an immense amount yeah. of energy. I, I mean, in addition to it being four hours, just the emotional toll of having to share you know, so openly and honestly and vulnerably about, you know, the abortions and all these things that have happened to you, like night after night after night has gotta be. Well, there's also a way in which it's really therapeutic. Mm. And it actually is like, I leave a little bit lighter every single night. And one of the other things I was gonna mention about the scriptedness is that watching Hannah's show was a reminder having built my own Ted talk actually sort of set me off on this path, but we, we have this crazy idea as indie rockers, especially that um, that scripted is bad, that it really needs to feel that like every night, you know, even if you've got the same set list, your banter between songs needs to just be totally off the cuff and fresh and new. And if you're telling a story, you're just sort of making it up as you go along so that everybody feels comfortable because this is not theater, you know, this is a rock show. And I, I had to jump that hurdle for uh-huh. this show and remember that um, doing this show more or less scripted, and it's not really scripted. I mean, there are beats in the show and I improvise a lot of the stories, but that that's allowed and that, that that's actually a kindness to the audience because otherwise the show would be seven hours. <laughs> well, also you have these people's attention for a certain period of time and you have an intention and something that you wanna convey. How do you do that most effectively and concisely? Like you have to <laughs> yeah. know where you wanna take them and the best way to get there. Well, and I really learned that with my TED talk because when I was first putting my TED talk together, I had this naive belief that I would just loosely script it, but then I would be my charming, spontaneous self, and that I had to be my charming, spontaneous self in order to be real. And I learned very quickly uh, that that was the least generous performance I could give, Mm. that actually the best performance I could give was to absolutely script that motherfucker down to the second and to every word and every adjective so that I could deliver the most bang for the buck with the 12 minutes that I had with these people. How long did it take you to put that together? A long time. Did it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was effectively, it was a 12 minute monologue that I had to memorize 
Um, and I had to have it memorized inside out, up, down, yeah. backwards and forwards. So I worked on that TED talk for two solid months. Yeah. Well, 12 minutes is infinitely harder than an hour and a half. Oh yeah. Yeah. With There's no just script. no no room for for anything, right? You yeah. Have to be and and on. even after all of that rehearsal, it's still veered towards 13 minutes. Yeah. So um, but you you talk about creating in these, I see you as this, this person who kind of creates in bursts and flurries. Like you're like, ah, oh, I had a thing and I just banged this song out or I had two hours and it was the best song I ever wrote. Mm. Like, what is that process like for you? Like the writing process and the creative inspiration aspect of like how you, um, you know, make the things. Do you have like a discipline where you're like, I show up for the page every day, sometimes I don't have it, or you're just, you get struck by lightning and you have this gift or this facility and it just pours out of you? Um, it's changed over time actually. So I used to just wander around getting struck by lightning constantly, like, you know, 10 times uh -huh. a day. And occasionally I would grab that lightning and run it over to the piano and start a song, but I was very, very bad at finishing songs. And I always carried around a lot of guilt that I was great at starting songs, but bad at finishing them. Uh -huh. And finishing a song is no fun. Starting a song is really fun. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like a relationship. It's like that first few <laughs> days of like really hot sex. Uh -huh. just, and then like, oh, and then you have to actually work on the relationship. Right. And that's just no fun. You want a key? <laughs> <laughs> you have problems? <laughs> um, and I finally, about three years ago, realized that if I was going to get songs finished, that I should really just follow the formula that seemed to be presenting itself to me anyway, which I was, which is, you know, seeing that the best songs I had ever written were all written in one sitting. And I, and I wasn't very good at going back to a song unless it was about 70 or 80% done. I just started sectioning off time uh -huh. and you know, knowing that lightning is pretty much available to me. I mean, I can turn on inspiration like a faucet, you know, give me an instrument and I can write a song. Yeah. Just, that's not a problem. It's really just a question of, can I finish it? So writer's block is not a thing. Yeah, I've never you had writer's block. I've never had that. I mean, I think writer's block can be confused for other things. You can always write something. It might just be bad. Yeah. You can always write something. I think it's a fear it's a fear thing. It's a fear of thinking, you know, you're not good enough or uh, Yeah, and I mean being per judged. perfectionism is definitely the enemy of creation. Yeah. And so lately, you know, what I have found is really helpful is I just have these blocks of time. I also have a kid now, so I really right. have to commit to um, you know, a block of time because my time is just not my own anymore. It belongs to my family. And I sit down and instead of vaguely pondering, is this idea really the one that I want to follow? I guess I could, like, I just have stopped being wishy-washy and I go with the first thought and I follow it and I... You know, I really shove perfectionism out the door and I just I just try to finish the thing. Mm -hmm. 
And I think there's also a luxury that comes with being an artist who has made a lot of shit. Because once you've made a lot of shit, you're not so precious about each and every little offering because there's thousands of them out there. When you've only offered the world five or 10 songs, you know, any given song is going to be a huge percentage of your catalog. So you're way more precious about it. But once you've proven yourself time and time again, and you've written hundreds of great songs, like whether or not this next song is the best thing you've ever written isn't very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want it to if be. You, you still hope it if will you be. Are, if you were going to do a second TED Talk though, right? Like, if you, cause that was such a sensation, right? Mm. It, that It's like that that one hit wonder thing. Like, can I repeat that? Can I get, catch lightning in a bottle again? Would be probably a different emotional Well, experience. I would never do that yeah, TED talk yeah, again, yeah. but oh my God. Yeah. Give me, yeah. give me another, t- I mean, I've got 10 TED talks I could do. I'd love to do a TED talk about patronage yeah. and the relationship over time through history and into the future about uh, our lack of imagination around helping each other. Um, I'd love to give a TED talk about miscarriage. I'd love to give a TED talk about childbirth. I'd love to give a TED talk about the stupid rules around breastfeeding. Like I could just go on mm. and on and on. I just don't really want to do that right now. Yeah. So I'm not. Well, can we talk about patronage though? We can talk about anything. Yeah. Um, like I said at the outset, like your relationship with your audience is, is like something I've never seen before. And it really, and I've heard you speak about this, like your, how you think about the um, how you think about patronage and the relationship is unique, but it's also more ancient, right? Like what's what's not functional is the relationship of industry to artist now and how we think about what that exchange looks like. And yours is one of depth over breadth, right? Where the industry kind of is driven by breadth in terms of like, how big is your audience? How many can you sell and all of that, rather than the intimacy and the connection that you can create with the people that are super into what you're doing. Sure, because capitalism. I mean, we're all, it's just like what's going on with the rest of the country and the problems that we're running into everywhere, which is, it's not about, it's not always about growth. It's not always about being the biggest and the best. And, you know, we're, we've really been fed a a painfully unhealthy diet of unsustainable ways of being. And that all of that applies to the art world. Elaborate. I mean, I grew up watching MTV. That was my education and what it meant to be a performer and a musician. You know, I was like raised on at the altar of Prince and Madonna and Michael Jackson. And, you know, these massive megastars were, you know, my guiding light. Like that's where you're supposed to mm-hmm. head. Be massive. That's that's what success looks like. I didn't have many models, even in my immediate little community of musicians uh, just making a living. You know, musicians just helping out their tribe members with, you know, small, helpful, connective reflections of what life in this town was like, of what, you know, what we are going through now. And, you know, wind the clock back a little bit. And that's how human beings have been using art and music for 
thousands of years. This scale thing that we have right. just been experiencing in this teeny sliver of, of human time is bananas. Well, we, we forget, and this is what you reminded me of, is that we forget that art and music really had nothing to do with commerce. No, and, sh- and, and we're never supposed to. Yeah. Art and music for thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history were just useful tools of the tribe. Yeah. We needed it for ritual, for grieving, for transition, for celebration. None of that was about selling shit. Right. It was about doing and, and being and connecting. And so how do you think we lost that initially? I mean, you get capitalism and money in the mix and things start to get very weird very fast. Yeah. But we're in this interesting time now where, you know, in the MTV era, it, you're look, you're either you either have a, a video on MTV or you're on the radio or nobody could possibly have any sense of what you were doing. Yeah, it's that's very all changed. Everything has been disintermediated. The middlemen and the gatekeepers are now gone. Everybody can be a creator and distribute their wares worldwide. And you know, the 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 possibility that you can be this massive band that you know that that isn't even really a reality except for a few acts these days anyway well so, that was always true i mean and what i have found fascinating is how little things have changed because i think it's foolhardy to say that the that the that the gatekeepers are gone they've just shifted faces and you know we still have our mega pop stars they're just you know, the gates have just sort of changed materials. And, you know, in this era, we still have massive stadium pop stars and giant machines. And we, you know, we just, we've just sort of shifted the way those people climb up the ladders mm-hmm. and they climb to the top of the mountain, but they still climb to the top of the mountain. You've still got Right, your- but I think that the infrastructure is still fractured. You know, like you said in your book, like we are the media, like that's a radical concept. That's also very true. And we're still in the very early stages of that, but mm. it's undeniable, you know, with you leading the charge and we're seeing more and more people kind of blaze this, the path similar to yours that, this is the future, like finding your tribe and honoring that is the path. Yeah, and I i mean, I, I adopted the internet really early on as a community tool, but none of us saw any of this stuff coming. You know, none of us back in the, you know, 2000, 2005 era could have forecasted that in 2019, we would be talking about deep fakes and talking about, you know, and looking at a generation of kids who it's very possible will never trust an image yeah, or even a moving image because who knows if that image is really real. And their cultural literacy, their media literacy is going to be so different from yours and mine. You know, we grew up in an era where like if you saw someone saying it on a TV, it was obviously happening. Yeah, That's not true anymore. Yeah. So playing that out, like what does that look like? Very strange. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. And if I had the answer, oh my God, like that would be my TED talk. I yeah, don't have yeah, the yeah. answer. Um, but I do think, you know, it's all for me with music and art, it's always going to circle back to why we needed it in the first place. The platforms will change. Who we trust will change. The middlemen will change. The gatekeepers, the filters will change, but why we do it 
and why we need to feel it, that will not change. No, nor will the expression, the impulse to say something and the appetite for story and art and people who are who are grappling with trying to find meaning in this crazy thing that we're doing called life, right? Amen. Yeah, that's not going away. Nope. Um, out of curiosity, it was interesting that you did your book with a traditional publisher, because I mm. would have thought like, of all people, like, why didn't you self-publish I, your book? I really thought about that um, because I got a lot of attention and a lot of offers and people knocking on my door after the TED Talk. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that I already had a big audience and that I had tended the, you know, that garden very meticulously and I had a great relationship with my crowd. And that if I wrote a book, they would absolutely be on board to buy it directly from me. And I knew that I could do that if I wanted. But I had also sort of raced that course once uh, with with music publishing and, and um, basically starting my own record label. And I know that it is not uncomplicated to learn how to do an entire industry out of your own office, out of your own bedroom. And I knew that book publishing was probably just as complicated, if not more complicated, um, than record record releasing. Uh -huh. So I knew that there was an, and I just knew that there was a glass ceiling there. So was I capable of like finding an editor, writing a book, making a cover, binding it, mailing it out to 25,000 people? I was probably capable of doing that. Did I want to learn how to do all of those things and do yeah. them really well? And then also probably, you know, not necessarily be able to find a good distributor for that book to get it in bookstores all over the world and get it translated mm -hmm. and then have people know that that book was out. And I was like, no, I'll let someone else do that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think also it, 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 it boils down to your intention too. Like if you wrote the book just to serve your audience, that's one thing. But, um, but when you go with the publisher, you have the opportunity to broaden that aperture a little bit and and reach people that might not know who you are. Yeah, and it and it works. I, yeah. I mean, I I stand by that decision and it, it is really rewarding to see someone in Russia or China, you know, picking up my book, translated into another language, connecting with the ideas. Yeah. Coming back to me and you know, telling me on Twitter that something that I said shifted something for them or changed their life. And mm. I don't think that would have happened if I had published the book myself. Yeah. Um, can we talk about asking? No. No, we're not gonna talk about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I asked. I know, that's, that's why it was funny. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this this idea that like you're the you're the DIY queen, like do it yourself queen. But it, it's not about doing it yourself. This no, is about it's the like doing opposite. it. It's it's the exact opposite of that. I tried to explain yeah. this in the book that DIY is is such a misnomer. Yeah. You know what it really means, DIY, especially you know, as as applied to the world that I came out of, like the punk world and stuff. DIY was you know we will do it. We're not going to use mm. the system. Do it without the system would, would have probably been a, a better um, acronym, but not as sexy. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. 
My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Tell the story about Thoreau and Donuts. Because uh, I think that captures it pretty well. That's a great well. story. Yeah. Uh, I, so I actually heard that story. Someone else gave a talk at the um, at the EXO conference, and I saw that talk and actually wrote to him to ask if I could steal the anecdote. <laughs> it was very upsetting to me. So Henry Thoreau, and you know, especially Walden, he's he's seen as this American hero of do-it-yourself, go-off-grid, connect with nature, self-reliance, right? You know, and everyone knows who's read Walden or knows this sort of piece of American history. He went and built his own little shack on the side of Walden Pond and just like everyone knows the quotes, right? Mm. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. I wanted to suck the marrow out of life. And everyone is just like, yeah. punk rock. You know, he just did, you know, did it himself. Picked his own food, you know, like, but, well, actually, it's bullshit. He was so helped. <laughs> he did have his little cabin by the woods and he was sort of off grid, but also he was a total freeloader. Mm. And he was constantly going over to Emerson's house where they had great dinners and he was just constantly welcomed in and hosted. <laughs> and the donuts story is the best. Yeah. His mom and his sister every Sunday would bring him a basket of donuts. It's so crushing to hear that. Fucking donuts. <laughs> Spoiled child. I know. Um, but also, you know, I take it one level further in the book. So there's a, there's a few things about Walden that are really beautiful. One is he actually lived at Walden for three years, but he condensed the story for, you know, the story of Walden is one year. Mm -hmm. 
He condensed it down. He took huge artistic liberties with his memoir to deliver, you know, again, like something economically palatable that we could flow with and understand. He was an artist. He took the experience and he made art. And he left out the story about the fucking donuts. It just wouldn't have squared with the Walden right. brand. Right. <laughs> but when you look at it, the the book worked. Walden worked. People got on board with the idea. They felt him. They got it. It's not that Walden is inauthentic. But we can also look back and ask, well, like, what, what fuel fed his ability to send that message into the world, into the canon of American literature? And the donuts are part of that. Mm. The generosity of... of Emerson and his mother and his sister and all the townspeople who just thought he was a kook but helped him out. Like, they fed that vision. Is Walden authentic? You know, maybe by some measure it's not. Maybe there's like a little bit of uh, early American charlatan in there. Or maybe it's just art. And art is never, getting back to this conversation from earlier, it's never totally pure doesn't work that way. An artist usually has a vision and then, you know, does whatever he or she has to do to, to, to create this offering. And it's always messy. Always. Yeah. I mean, there's a distinction between truth and fact, right? Like the artist's job is to extract the truth out of you know a, a certain perspective, and that doesn't mean fidelity to a factual timeline. It's about trying to discern from an experience what is universal. So to take that three years and condense it to one, to speak to something that he was passionate about, uh, I don't think diminishes the work that he did. But no. it is interesting, you know, because you know part of part of that legacy is, you know, Americana, like rugged individualism. And right, the pull yourself up of, yeah, by your exactly. bootstraps and do it yourself. And, and it, 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 you know, it's a lie, it basically, a lie. because everybody has relied on everybody else well, to and look make at their Trump. way in the world. I mean, look at Trump's story about himself as compared to what we now know is the truth mm. of or whatever, the truth as we could possibly know it. Self-made billionaire, self-made billionaire. It's all just bullshit. Mm -hmm. But God, his own belief in his story and his ability to just unapologetically stick to his story is what I think people find so incredibly attractive. Well, and, and larger than that, it's, it's, it's um, this sensibility that we have that that's what's to be celebrated. Like we celebrate that that rugged individualism and the person that doesn't have to raise their hand and ask for help and did it by themselves is this fabrication that you know we've decided is laudable and what we should aspire to. And it's insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from you know, you point out like, well, you look at Steve Jobs, like his parents had to give him the garage, right? Totally. Like, the garage there's was nobody the donut. who didn't, you know. <laughs> who didn't advance without the help of whoever. Well, and to think that we're supposed to do this life without help, without being interconnected, 
is insanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I grew up like a lot of people, uh, you know, intuiting that. My, I mean, my dad, I, I vividly remember, you know, going on family vacations in the station wagon and my dad getting lost and refusing to ask for directions and just getting into fights with my mom because he just would not go to the gas station and ask the guy where to go. And, you know, that's the, you know, emotional landscape that I inherited. And, you know, as you point out in your book, like this is, this is, you know, right in the, in the wheelhouse of Brene Brown, like this idea that, you know, to ask for help is to show vulnerability, which in men, you know, is very shame provoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes us feel like failures. And in women, it makes them feel like they're not enough mm. to raise their hands. Yeah, whereas uh, if you if you just do a quarter turn, you could look at every potential for asking for help as an opportunity to mm-hmm. connect, which is what we actually like. You know, this is the, this is, the, I write about this in The Art of Asking. When you start asking, um, and you take the charge and the shame out of it, um, life becomes really bountiful because people generally like being asked. You know, I mean, the gas station attendant mm-hmm. who only gets asked, maybe not so much, uh, but people really like feeling useful. People like sharing knowledge. People like sharing, period. I mean, it's the other side of the myth that, you know, the, why would you ask for help? Why would you ask for someone to share their thing? Why would you want to do that? Well, that's actually how we function best, you know, is as a community, as a tribe, as an interconnected tribe. You do that, I'll do this. You know, we'll, we'll figure this out together. None of us clearly, you know, look at us from the early days of our mammalhood. We're not rugged individuals. We were not physically built to walk through this life alone. No way, no how. This is not the way we're constructed. Mm -hmm. We're built as tribal beings who are supposed to be interconnected and interdependent. That's literally how we're built. And so fighting that is just a form of self-annihilation. Yeah, and yet that sensibility is what has driven, I think, this epidemic of loneliness and isolation and everybody, you know, living in their ticky-tack houses separate from each other and non-communicative and... um, and ultimately depressed and depressed, lonely, and, and, and on, a, yeah, and on yeah, opiates. Hooray! Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this all begins with you, day. like, like for you, you know, when I think of your story, like it, it all starts with you making eye contact with one individual in Harvard Square. It's like that intimate connection um, really created the foundation for everything that you do now. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? So I was a street performer for a lot of my early 20s and I I was a living statue and I had a lot of great intimate moments with many, 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 many strangers. Um, But in the cause and effect of my life, I'm not sure that that was the cause of where I headed after that so much as, you know, that was something that But like the, sorry, I don't want to project on you at all, but like that idea of like, (laughs) like you talk about, you know, making eye contact with people and like, and and seeing them, like in the mm-hmm. value of like being seen, right? Mm-hmm. And that seems to be a theme that resonates throughout how you interact with your audience today. Yeah. Like your willingness to see them. Well, 
I think you could probably find an answer to my, you know, why I had a hunger for being seen, as I think we all really do. Um, but, you know, it, may, it might have been amplified in me because I was the youngest of four kids. And I also, I, for a lot of reasons, felt very unseen as a kid. Um, and also had a talent for performing and for music and loved the stage. And I really grappled with a lot of pain and agony as a teenager and into my early 20s about my desire to be seen because I had been really punished by a lot of different adults for wanting to be seen. Like I got smacked around for wanting to be seen and told that I was, um, that I was being distracting, that I was just trying to get attention, that it wasn't all about me. And so I constantly second guessed and was suspicious of my own desire to be seen or my desire for any attention because, um, I was afraid of it, and I was afraid that it was wrong and bad. And so it wasn't until I really started performing and connecting with people on a on a really profound level that I got to sort of smooth those rough edges away mm -hmm. and actually see my desire to be seen as a positive force instead of as this like terrible negative need. Yeah. And when did you kind of begin to really form this sensibility around asking. You know, when when you when you give your TED talk, it's so eloquently, you know, kind of considered, but was there like a moment where you realized like this is the path for me is laid out in my willingness to, you know, rely upon these people as patrons of, you know, what I do. I mean, I think a lot of it I just picked up from um, the music communities and the art communities that I wanted to emulate. And the music and art communities that I wanted to emulate were the, were the interconnected ones, the ones where I saw people helping each other, where it was about the music and about the connection and about the togetherness and about the progress and the evolution and the, you know, the folk scene. Uh -huh. That was all based on like, Brothers and sisters, let's hold hands and do this together. Let's try to share our truths. Let's try to affect change. The punk scene was the same way. The yeah. punk scene was about like, forget about those people. Like, we'll do this. We have truths to tell. We will do shows in basements. We will, you know, we'll carry around our own gear. We will help each other do this and we don't need the system. Mm -hmm. And those were the scenes that I gravitated towards and the and the people and the systems that I wanted to emulate. And those systems were based on asking. They were based on asking, like, do you have an amp I can borrow? Can we use your basement? Will you come to my show? Will you go, will you get on your bike with me and go around town with duct tape and flyers and put signs up? Like, let's do this. Let's us do this. Right, and the answer always being yes. Yeah, because like, it's fun. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things you talk about is, is, you know, this initial desire to be a rock star and then realizing like, well, rock stars are, the antithesis of what I want to be because they're isolated. Those they're, rock stars. They're disconnected. Well, and now we can actually, you know, we didn't have a control back then, but we can now look at some of my heroes from the, you know, days of MTV as Alter and 
you know, Michael Jackson, my hero, and Prince, my hero, and Madonna, whatever. The jury's out on Madonna. Who knows if she's happy? <laughs> but I think we can say with some degree of certainty that those guys were not very happy. Yeah. That being up on Rockstar Mountain, disconnected and unable to just be among and with the tribe did not make those guys happy. Well, and because happiness is a direct function of your connectivity to the tribe. Totally. Right? And that's like you're, I mean, you're immersed. It's like your life is crowd surfing with these people that hold you up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean and the and then the question there becomes like well is that is that scalable? Mm. And that's sort of scalable for yourself or other people you mean? For, oh, for anyone. Yeah. Why is, why wouldn't it be? Why why I mean there's got to be legion of, you know, young Amanda Palmers out there at the early in the early stages of creating what you've created. Sure. And then the question is, you know, can you hold that level of intimacy and that level of connectivity to the tribe and the normalcy that is oh, required of you yeah. and the tribe yeah. in order for you to just stand there when you're playing to an arena of 30,000 people. Yeah. Do you worry about that? No, because I don't think I'm ever gonna be playing to an <laughs> arena of 30,000 people. But if you were to, I mean, has that thought crossed your mind? Like, I don't wanna be that big because I don't wanna lose that connection? I, I like to think optimistically that if I lived in a universe in which this kind of music attracted a crowd of 30,000 people, we'd be living in a universe where I would be okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you can't fake it either. Like that, that, you know, that love that you have for your tribe is visceral, right? It's not something you can be fake. And I, and you know, look, you know, even these words, vulnerability and community and connectivity, like they've been co-opted. These have been commercialized. Like there is a- Game like on social connectivity with your yeah, Well, it's like on social media, there's a, there's, a, there's a performative vulnerability. Like people who are like, you know, sort of oversharing, but really kind of just to build their audience or get clicks, like it doesn't feel real. Like there's a certain lack of, lack of authenticity in this seemingly quote unquote authentic post, right? Do yeah. you, I mean, do you notice that? Do you see that? Sure. Yeah. So there's a difference between the real thing and kind of this rise of, you know. Yeah. And I mean the you'll you'll get back what you put out. You know, you can't really get away with faking yeah. it. And for good reason, you know, because you just can't. Yeah. And it won't feed you back if you put out empty calories. You're not gonna. You're not gonna be nurtured in return. Mm. Yoga and meditation. I'm a fan. Yeah. What is the relationship uh, between those things and kind of your creative sensibility? Like, how does it fuel that? <sighs> oh well, I um. I started my yoga and meditation practice in. Uh, in earnest in my early twenties, and I don't—I don't think you can disentangle a any of yeah. my career and my path from my practice. I just—I don't have another one of me who didn't do that, so I'll never know. Right. But I—I 
you know, I credit my, my mindfulness practice to, you know, any of the insights that I've had about any of this stuff probably wouldn't have happened. And what does that practice look like? It depends on, it depends on the time. I <laughs> Typically. Mean, right, well, I just had a child. So uh, one of the first things that went out the window was my morning meditation because mm. child. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, I sit when I can. Um, I try to go to yoga when I can. Um, and I, you know, I, I also am, I'm a firm believer that the, that you practice off the mat, that, you know, yeah. that you just try to live mindfully and that it's possible at any time. It's possible mm-hmm. during a podcast. It's possible while brushing your teeth. It's possible. It's possible while driving a car. And actually, the danger is in separating and thinking that your practice is, you know, when you're sitting in lotus position, mm-hmm. being all, you know, meditating. That's, yeah. that's can you just, take it into the world? Yeah, I mean, that's the only point yeah. of the practice, isn't it? <laughs> right. Um, uh, but I was lucky, you know, in my in my early twenties, my mentor Anthony. Um, he gifted and ushered me into uh, meditation retreats. And those were galvanizing experiences, doing silent meditation retreats in my 20s for, you know, six, seven days at a time. Like the Vipassana retreats? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and that also, you know, that plus a regular yoga practice in my 20s, you know, I just had the proof right there that when I practiced, I was more able to deal with life. And when I didn't, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I knew, you know, I could either go left or I could go right. And I chose to go towards practice. Yeah. So we're in an interesting moment right now with reproductive rights and everything that's going on in Georgia. Um, and I'm interested in how you see the future of the female empowerment movement and how you see your role in that and you know what the next generation of this looks like. I wish How's that I, for like a really broad, big yeah, question? I wish I had an answer. <laughs> uh, I have, I have hopes. Yeah. You know, it's, it may get worse before it gets better. Um, but I'm starting to see people rising up, standing up, speaking out, organizing uh, like I have not seen before and it's going to be yeah, necessary. it's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's, it's like so many other things happening right now. I mean, there's going to have to be a revolutionary pushback against the climate disaster. There's going to have to be a revolutionary pushback against, you know, the human rights violations, whether it's reproductive or, you know, what what is happening with immigration. Like mm-hmm. there is going to have to be a pendulum swing as hard and as, you know, and as powerful as as the one that's taken us into the dark. And the, you know, the world is moving really fast right now. Everything just feels like it is going at a sort of a critical, urgent speed. And I I hope, I can sense, I might be wrong, but in the art and music world, especially when it comes to reproductive rights and women, that you are going to start to see 
stories coming out at, at an alarming rate um, because it is, the, it is the sharpest weapon we have right now. And, you know, and we can take political action of this kind or that, but actually the most important thing women can do right now is just get up and shamelessly tell their stories, tell the truth. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what your show is all about, right? Like in you doing this and showing, look, I'm gonna share this, like it gives everybody else permission to do the same. And it's, you know, it's visceral and it's powerful um, to hear that coming from you. And, you know, as a, as a white man um, to really understand like the universality of this kind of story that you told last night and how many people are impacted by it and from it and sharing it in that kind of very first person experiential kind of way. Like this is what it's like when you you have to like go on Google and find where the place is. And then you got to get like, are you supposed to call anyone? Like, what are you supposed to do? Like to really like walk in those shoes to feel what that must feel like. Yeah. And to remind people that information is power, you know, and the the history books don't lie. I mean, we can look at it across time. When, when fascism is on the rise anywhere in the world, the first thing to go is reproductive rights. Mm. It's just hand in hand. That's the way it works. And never uh, has there been, you know, that's when the, the role and the importance of the artist kind of gets... Yeah, it's our, it's, our, it's our job to yeah. just get up and go like, oh God, we don't really want to have to do this. <laughs> yeah. We'd so much rather be doing other things, but like, fuck this. Yeah. This is not good for us. Fuck this. Fuck this. All right. I think that's a good place to stop. <laughs> Got to get you to the airport. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you for so everything for you do. Um, keep making all the things. I can't help it. All right, cool. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Peace. What a beautiful, powerful font of creativity that Amanda is. Uh, so much respect. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I really did. Uh, please check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com to extend your experience of the conversation beyond the earbuds. Let Amanda know how uh, you felt about this conversation. You can share your thoughts directly with her on Twitter and Instagram at Amanda Palmer. And uh, that's it. Uh, if you're struggling with your diet, if you're really desiring of mastering your plate, but feel like you just don't have very many skills in the kitchen or you don't have a lot of time to devote to this, or perhaps you feel like your budget won't allow for it, please check out our Plant Power Meal Planner. I really think it can help you. We designed it with one goal in mind, to solve a very simple, basic problem, how to make nutritious eating not only delicious and affordable, but also accessible and easy. When you sign up, at meals.richroll.com, you'll get access to thousands of delicious, easy to prepare plant-based recipes that are customized just for you. You also get unlimited grocery lists, grocery delivery integrated into the product in most metropolitan areas, and a team of amazing nutrition coaches at the ready to answer all your questions and guide you seven days a week. And you get it all for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year, literally the price of a cup of coffee. To learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu on my website.
If you're enjoying the program and you want to support what we do here on the podcast, just tell your friends about your favorite episode or the podcast in general. Share the show on social media. Hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts. Uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a comment on YouTube. And you can support the show on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I appreciate my amazing team that works hard behind the scenes to put on the show. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering production, show notes, interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing the podcast. Uh, Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. DK David Kahn for advertiser relationships and theme music by Analemma. Love you guys. Appreciate you so much. Thank you for listening. And I will see you back here very soon with an incredible conversation with Annika Harris all about her new book, Conscious. It's super great. You guys are going to love it. Until then, peace, plants, namaste. Yeah.